We have an update on the Lazy DMs Companion Kickstarter. The Lazy DMs Companion and Sly Flourish are both up for Ennies this year. We're going to talk about the free version of Mjorkberg that you can pick up right now. I'm going to talk about my next two campaign adventures for my Wednesday and my Sunday game. We're going to talk about including third-party character options in your campaigns. We're going to talk a little bit more about near-perfect games. And we're going to cover the first batch of Patreon questions for July of 2022, all today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm your pal, Mike Shea from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help me out and get exclusive access to all kinds of adventures and city source books and previews of upcoming events and the ability to add questions to the monthly Patreon Q&A, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. Flourish. Links for all of that is in the show notes below to the patrons of Sly Flourish. Thank you so much for helping me put on this show. It has been a really awesome week for the Sly Flourish Empire, for myself in particular, but for the Sly Flourish Empire. The big one was we finally have some big news on the Lazy DM Companion Kickstarter. I have not posted a ton of Kickstarter updates. I generally want to post an update when there's something I can really tell you that is valuable and that you can do something with. And I'll tell you, when it comes to offset printing, so one thing about the Kickstarter, everybody that backed at the digital level, which is about half of backers, already received everything that they are going to get and they received everything that they paid for. So that is great, right? The digital, to those of you who backed at the digital level, thank you so much because it was easy to get product into your hand. The other half of the Kickstarter, though, was for the first time I'm doing offset printing. And offset printing is a really, really, it's a whole new ball game. I'm not used to it. I have partnered with a couple of different companies to help me out with the fulfillment, with getting the printing and fulfillment done. And even with having a lot of people on my side who have experience doing this thing, it is still a great big endeavor. And there's lots of variables that you just don't know, which means it's very difficult for me to even estimate when books are going to be in people's hands, which is why I didn't say like, oh, it's going to be this month. And many of you who have backed many Kickstarters have seen it from time to time where you back a Kickstarter and it's months out of date, right? Like things happen and things go on and you don't get your product when you think you're going to get it because it's really hard to, 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 to gauge it. You don't know like so many variables, global issues, paper shortages, shipping shortages, you know? And so there's a whole thing on like, you know, you're always fighting the last war, right? You're always, you're always using like the tools to fight the last war. And I was like really worried about shipping concerns going overseas because when I started the Kickstarter shipping concerns were crazy. So I actually worked with two different printers in two different continents to print the book so that we didn't have to ship a big pallet of books. Well, now shipping a big pallet of books across the seas does take extra time but it's not nearly as bad as it was back then and now paper shortages are the problem luckily i managed to get through the paper shortage so the good news is i have an update and the big part of the update is i have physical books the lazy dm companion a physical version of it and they're gorgeous this is actually the north american printing printed up in canada from from a company and they're beautiful right i got three copies of each book and I have all three books, The Companion in the soft cover. I, I'm knocking my dice all over the place. I have the workbook where I got to put this. I have the workbook in spiral bound, right? The spiral bound workbook really lay flat, perfectly, perfectly usable, beautiful interior, like the color on it. It's not going to come across on the camera, but the internal colors are great. They're vibrant and rich and deep and wonderful. Just, just great. And the new hardcover version of Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. This is by far the best version of Lazy Dungeon Master that exists. It's beautiful hardcover book, thread bound, beautiful interiors, deep colors, really, really good looking book. So I'm very excited, very excited for this. So this is the North American printing. The North American, so the, what's the update? Yeah, that's great, Mike. You got copies in your desk. What about me and my desk? I'm, I'm here. So the good news is that the non-North American backers who, who ordered physical versions they are getting fulfilled right now they we had the books in the warehouse in the united kingdom for a couple of weeks and you got to deal with a lot of things like that issues so there's a lot of it's all like heavy international shipping and a lot of issues with the value added tax vat i don't know anything about it i still know anything about it luckily i'm working with a partner who does know lots of things about it but dealing with vat costs and everything like that really really took us like a couple of weeks and for some people it's taken way longer than that for fulfilling so i'm very lucky that that it's that it only took a couple of weeks and that's starting to get fulfilled right away so you should start if you ordered it if you're not in north america and you ordered physical versions of the books from the kickstarter you should start seeing a shipping manifest that'll tell you that it's it's on the way and i don't know how long it's gonna take it depends on where you are 
North American printing are also in the warehouse. So good news is the warehouse is actually a couple hours north of uh, north of me. And we have all of the books for the North American printing, which is about 80% of them, are in the warehouse. And that's the one where I ordered a shipment myself because it's only two hours away. And I got I got the physical version so I could check them out before we started shipping. And I checked them out and they're awesome and they're going to start shipping. That warehouse is going to, they're fulfilling another Kickstarter right now. And then I think, I'm, I'm guessing a couple of weeks, they're going to start shipping those out as well. So I'm going to get a firmer schedule. I'm hoping it's a couple of weeks. I think it should be a couple of weeks. And then they're going to start d- delivering the North American copies of the, the three Lazy DM books. At that point, I will also make them available on the, the, the store. So if you want, if you did not get in the Kickstarter or you got the digital version, you want the physical version too. You'll be able to order it on the Sly Flourish store. I have a shop.slyflourish.com. You can go there. You can order the book and it will be delivered the same way that the Kickstarter is being delivered. And I should have plenty of copies. So you, you will definitely be able to get it. So that is where we stand on the Lazy DM Companion Kickstarter. Very exciting. The other big news is that both the Lazy DM's Companion and Sly Flourish are up for Ennies. So the Ennies, it started off as an N-World thing, but now it's completely separate, is a nonprofit organization that runs a fan-based, fan-based awards for role-playing game products. They've been around for many, many years. They've, they've done it before. I actually have had the pleasure of winning twice before. Once for Sly Flourish back in 2018. I have the mug there. And in 2019, best electronic book for Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master for this guy. It's going to win a gold any for, for it. There's three. You get bronze, silver, and gold. I got a silver any for best blog. I got a gold any for a best electronic book for the Lazy DM's Companion. I'm sorry, for the Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. And the book is under best, there's many, many great products that are here. The Lazy DM Companion is up for best electronic book for an any. And best online content, Sly Flourish, is available for best online content. Voting will begin, I think, on the 16th. So I think it will be next Saturday. Uh, Voting will begin. And I am going to do my best to make sure that you are aware of the fact that you can vote for for the Lazy DM's Companion and for Sly Flourish for Best Any. Because I would really love to win an any for both of those products. I'm very proud of them. I work very, very hard for both that book and the website, the website I've been doing for 12 or 13 years now. So I would, I'm, I'm very proud of both and I hope, I hope we win. So we will talk more about that next week, but I'm very excited that I was not being nominated is great on its own. Lots of wonderful products that weren't nominated. Many, many great things for both of these that weren't nominated. I'm very proud to just be nominated for both of them, but I'd love to win too. Mjorkberg is a heavy metal role-playing game dark grim you know black metal rpg it has it's almost more of an art book than it is a role-playing game i have a copy i have i have done a spotlight of mjorkberg before i think it's awesome i love it and you can you can you can pick up the physical version and i'll tell you like the physical version there's a human heart where they're talking about hit points right crazy design and I know it is a very polarizing book because people either look at this thing and are like, holy cow, this thing is crazy and awesome. I think it's crazy and awesome. And then other people are like, I can't even read it, right? Like, I can't even understand what's going on. I can't even read it. So Mjorkberg now has what they call the bare bones edition. It is free. You can just go get it. The link, I will paste the link into Twitch right now. And you will find the link in the show notes below where you can get it for free. You can also name your own price and 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 throw a couple of bucks their way. What I think is really cool about the bare bones edition is many people have said, oh, thank God, a version I can read, right? Which is hysterical because yeah, they, 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 the graphic design really went over the top in the book. And in many cases, you're like, I don't understand what I'm even reading. But if you want to understand the system of New York, which is a very rules light, you know, I would consider it an, an old school version of the the game we love so much very old school very version light and you want to you want a ver- very system light like it's an easy system to write a character for and to get to get going playing very grim you're very likely to die you're very likely to die in horrible ways the whole world is dying everything's dying it's terrible black and ugly and things under your fingernails and and but if you want a version where you can you know read all the rules or you want one where you're like man i'd like the guide but i don't understand i can't read it right because it's just the 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 the, the version of it is so you know, so hard to read. This is a 76 page version of the book that where, where the graphic design has been pulled out of it. And it's really cool. I mean, for free, absolutely. You should go check it out. Like, you know, just there, one of the things that it has, that I just love are crazy fun, random tables, really, really fun, 
really, really fun random tables for all this stuff. You know, when will the agony end? Years of pain, a bleak half year, a fall in anguish. The end is nigh, right? The Psalms, the Psalms that call for the end of the world. Lots of really great random tables all throughout this. There's a whole like adventure generator random table in here. And I, I will, I would be lying if I said that some of the inspiration for some of the material in the Lazy DMs Companion didn't come from Mjorkberg. It did. Some of the inspiration also came from Ironsworn, which I think also has some of the best random tables I have seen. So yeah, really, really cool. I would, I, I highly recommend it just, just as a fun way to look at a lightweight, very stylistic, very thematic, very grim you can you can check it out and it's it's all you find again find it in the show notes below i'm trying to find some of the unclean scrolls right weird weird power sacred scroll the basilisk's demand a widower's wedding ring a body mutilated by those who loved it in life <laughs> a child born with a third eye ah oh, it's so much fun Broken bodies, staring maniac gaze, decaying teeth, hands caked with sores, <laughs> bad habits. <clears throat> Your best friend is a skull. Carry it with you. Tell it everything. You trust no one more. Fun, fun random tables. Really, really, really great stuff. Check it out in the show notes below. No reason to take a look. I will also link to my preview where I went over Mjorkberg. I'll, I will link to that 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 show where I did that as well because it is definitely worth checking checking it out. It will not brighten your day. The the thing that makes it the, why it brightens my day is it's not a real world. It's a fake world. I read this wonderful thing that talked about the difference between black metal and death metal. And they said, by and large, people who like death metal are far happier. <laughs> I said, black metal, everybody's very broody and very dark. And they sort of are in character the whole time. Where death metal, it's like, you know, yeah, you're smashing skulls and screaming, you know. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're, you're pretty cheerful. You're a pretty cheerful person. I think I am close to a decision about the next two campaigns I'm going to run. So I'm currently running two different RPG campaigns. I am running my Numenera campaign. You can see all of the Numenera prep that I do for my shows every Sunday. That's one of the videos. I'll link to it in the show notes below. And on Wednesdays, I am running a Wild Beyond the Witchlight D&D game. I do occasional videos about my Wild Beyond the Witchlight game, mostly in like how to run a particular chapter of Wild Beyond the Witchlight. I do a video for each of the chapters of the book. Plan to plan to finish that off with it whole chapters of the book and now i'm beginning to think about what campaigns i want to run next because both of them are getting kind of into the final act of each of the campaigns it'll probably be a month or so before i dig into them but i'm starting to look at what i want to run and the two that have stuck out to me are both kobold press adventures both kobold press campaigns scarlet citadel and empire of the ghouls and i've started reading so i've i've, I've given both a good skim right and i've started reading Empire of the Ghouls, particularly in earnest, because I think that one is going to be the trickier of the two to run. Empire of the Ghouls is a very story-focused adventure, lots of travel. It is, it is, it kind of feels a little bit like Horde of the Dragon Queen, or maybe a little bit like a more focused version of Storm King's Thunder. But you you travel, you, you spend a good deal of time on the road. And if you want an adventure that is going to cover a good chunk of Midgard's overworld and various cities and realms in the area, it starts in Zobek, but it goes into other places. Empire of the Ghouls is really that. Scarlet Citadel is a much more focused adventure. It's built around one town and a nearby dungeon. And and you're you're going about there. It's very like reminiscent of Greyhawk or Keep of the Borderlands or Temple of Elemental Evil. It's very kind of a focused adventure that sits there. So it's going to be interesting to run both of these. My my Wednesday group were likely to run Empire of the Ghouls. My Sunday group were likely to run Scarlet Citadel. I might end up offering both to both groups and letting them decide which ones they want to run because they the, the players might decide they're like, yeah, do I want a, a wider spread, higher travel, you know, more episodic kind of bigger story focused adventure like Empire of the Ghouls? Or do we want one that is more of a, a, a mega dungeon delve, more local game? Like, do you want to do more dungeon delving or do you want to do more widespread exploration, right? And I'm happy to run either. I think I will be happy to run either. And if both groups say, 
we just want to run Scarlet Citadel. Then I'll just run Scarlet Citadel. I think. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Because I think I've started to sell my Wednesday group on Empire of the Ghouls. But it certainly make my life easier if both groups are running one campaign. And I think I might, I think I might be happy running either of them. It's possible that Scarlet Citadel will be faster than Empire of the Ghouls. Empire of the Ghouls feels bigger and like it would take a longer. Scarlet Citadel, because it's a focused adventure and you're kind of going off in these different dungeon romps, I think that that might be a faster adventure. And then, of course, there's, you know, multiple D&D campaigns of, from Wizards of the Coast coming out, including the new starter set adventure, Dragon of Stormwreck Isle, which I think is coming at the end of this month in the start in the new starter set at Target. We have Radiant Citadel, which is coming out. I haven't seen that yet. And we have Spelljammer, which is coming out next month. I'm sure I'll want to run those as well. And maybe if those are out by then, we'll change our mind. I don't know. But because I haven't read them, I don't know that I want to run them. One, one mistake I feel like I made was when I decided to run Rhyme of the Frostmaiden is I was just on this idea of like, of course, I'm going to run the Wizards of the Coast hardcover adventure. Why wouldn't I? I've run every one of them, right? Just about. I, the only one I didn't run was the, the, the Dungeon of the Mad Mage. And I didn't, I read it and I didn't dig it when I first read it. And that was really a sign to me that I probably shouldn't have run it. I'm not unhappy that I did, right? We had two really fun campaigns, lovely characters, really good stories, really good times with my friends. That wasn't a problem. But I could have probably done that with any campaign adventure. Instead of picking up an adventure going, ooh, I really like the theme of this. This looks like it'll be a lot of fun. I was like, ah, it's got problems right off the bat. Like I knew early on all the work I was going to have to do to run that. And I made a decision then that just because Wizards of the Coast puts out a hardcover adventure does not mean I'm going to run it. Right. That like I'm going to break that cycle. I don't need to run a Wizards of the Coast adventure and I want to run more third party stuff. Right. So both of these, when I read them, I kind of dig them. I kind of like I like the ideas behind them. I like that they're in new worlds. I like that they're set in Midgard. So I'm probably likely to run these before I would run something like Spelljammer or I might I might try to run Dragon of Stormwreck Isle with a different group. Right. And I might end up running some of these other ones. I know Radiant Citadel is coming out later this month and I might want to run that, too. But that looks like it'll be really good for one shot adventures. So we're going to see. So I'm, I'm leaving options open, but I'm leaning heavily towards running Scarlet Citadel and Empire of the Ghouls for my two my two new groups. As part of that. It brings up the big question of third-party character options, right? And I'm trying to decide what third-party character options to make available if I run those two campaigns. And I'm likely to. So if I'm like, if I'm running Scarlet Citadel and Empire of the Ghouls, which are both Midgard, they're both, they're both Cobalt Press campaigns, and they're both set in Midgard. Certainly Empire of the Ghouls is much tighter is tied much tighter to Midgard than Scarlet Citadel is, which really could be dropped anywhere. Like, I don't think Scarlet Citadel has a lot of deep lore that goes into the rest of Midgard. That's something that Cobalt Press is trying to do. They're trying to make stuff that's more suitable for other home group campaigns or other worlds and stuff like that. And the big question is, well, which... So what sources do I want characters to be able to have access to? And what do I make available and what do I not make available? And there's a couple of like odds and ends there too. So an example is a new book came out from Cobalt Press just now called Tome of Heroes, right? Great big book, great big thick book just came out. I just got the Kickstarter version. It's a 300, 320 page book, right? It's huge. Just with character options built for Cobalt Press. So it has tons of new races, tons of new uh, subclasses, new, I think it's got new spells. It's got new adventure, new backgrounds and feats. It's got lots of different stuff. And so my first thought was, oh, I'll just add this, right? But then it's like, well, that's good, but that's also built to be pretty universal. It's not designed specifically for Midgard. And there's the other book of the Midgard Heroes Handbook, which I also have. It's a little older, not, not that old. It's like 2018, I think, is when this book came out. And it's built on a lot of material that I think came out in other sources. Yeah, 2018. So this book's about four years old. And it also has lots of backgrounds, lots of races, lots of subclasses, all, all kinds of things. But they are built more around Midgard. So it seems like this could possibly be good to have a better tie to Empire of the Ghouls. I could just say both. Right. I could just offer both. I, I, I don't know if it's true. I haven't like dug in to really find out. But I think that Tome of Heroes has been through more playtesting than, than this one has. But I don't know that I've heard anything where somebody goes, oh, man, just don't play this character class or this class build because it'll wreck the game. Right now, I've already got that problem with Wizards of the Coast one. So, like, I've got, you know, no, nothing's perfect. And I think we need to start vetting what we're allowing in the games because broken things. Can get. So I'm probably going to have a house rule in my session zero that says, look, I want to open up lots of different class options to you guys. When we look at them, all of us need to take a look and go, does that feel like it's going to have a problem for our game? Like, you know, does that, does that look like it's too good? 
or it's going to shift the game in a different direction than we want. And then we might take another look at it. So I, I'm going to give veto. I'm going to accept veto privileges. Then the other thing is, well, what about Xanathars and Tasha's? Do we want to include those, right? What, what else do we want to include? My thought is that I would say my, one of my thoughts was it's going to be player's handbook and Tome heroes. Those are the two books, right? No Tasha's, no Xanathar's with a, with a slight difference that I would, I would include some of Tasha's quality of life changes, the class-based changes that they have in there. So no subclasses from Tasha's, probably no spells and anything from Tasha's and instead include player's handbook plus this, plus some of the Tasha stuff. So I really like the flexible attributes that Tasha includes. I like a lot of the other class things that they include. A lot of them are like your ability to switch in and out things or your ability to use your channel divinity to get spell slots back. I think those stuff are fine, right? So I would, I would say that we can have, you know, any, any Tasha quality of life things that the players want, they can have. But the subclasses are, 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 are not in and spells aren't in. And by not having spells from Tasha's and Xanathar's, that limits things. Everyone's going to go, oh my God, but, but what about my Toll the Dead? And I'll be like, no, no Toll the Dead. And instead, we will include spells from like Toma Heroes and probably Vault Toma Magic, right? That, that we can include other new spells that aren't in there. But then the other big elephant in the room is what about D&D Beyond? Right. My players love D&D Beyond. They love using D&D Beyond. It's a real chore for them to have something that's not in D&D Beyond. And what I would recommend to them is to do it in paper again. Right. Let's do our character sheets the old school way in paper. Yeah. DM Sam says, oh, Toma magic spell. Some of them are broken. Right. So those I would probably inject myself. I would look for a spell and I would drop it in myself rather than opening up and saying you can get all of the spells. Because the other part is like my players don't own these books. And so am I basically saying like, hey, everybody. You know, you want to play, you're going to have to spend $25 to go buy the PDF of Toma Heroes. You're going to spend 50 bucks. You can borrow my copy when you're around, but if you're not, what are you going to do? That's a lot. That's a lot to ask, right? Like I'll tell you, it's really nice in TNT Beyond being able to say, I have Tasha's, therefore you have Tasha's, right? That's real sticky. That's a real sticky bit. And beyond the fact that it's much easier to build characters in Dignity Beyond than it is and maintain and run characters in Dignity Beyond than it is in paper, which I, I think is mostly true. You will There's good arguments that you won't understand your character as well if you're using Dignity Beyond than if you've handwritten it, right? I think that is probably true, maybe true. So, but yeah, it can be tough. So then it's asking like, well, will people go in home, you know, you can go in and make homebrew stuff in D&D Beyond that can add character options and stuff, but will, will people bother? It's a lot of work, right? And it's a lot of effort. So will people do it? So instead, you know, I so said, how is that going to play out? I don't know. I'm going to, I got time. I'm going to talk to my players about it. My recommendation is probably, you know, hey, I think it'll be fun to play with these options. It'll be fun to play with this limited set. So that that's focused on the campaign that we're running. But probably paper is going to be the best way to run your character rather than D&D Beyond. I don't know if people are going to, I don't know if people are going to go for that. So yeah, so those are, that. that's kind of where I'm at. And it's still something I'm going to think about, something I'm going to talk about more. But it really does show like how sticky D&D Beyond got, right? Like D&D Beyond got really sticky. And that's, yeah, it's great. Like it's, it's, it's sticky for a good reason, which is it's a good tool. It's not a monopoly you know, it's, it's, is it, it's, or a non-competitive monopoly kind of a little bit, right? But it's only because it's their own IP and they're not allowing third-party stuff in there. But whenever somebody says like, oh, it's a big monopoly, well, the only reason it's a monopoly is because it's good, right? If it wasn't good, we wouldn't care, right? If, if, it, if, it, if the site was bad, we'd just be using paper or some other third-party thing, right? But it's a really good system. It's a really good tool. And so, it hurts that you don't have access to all of this other stuff in it. But I also think that sometimes maybe it's important to kind of go back and say, can we play this game with just pen and paper again? Like we used to, right? Because if the game can only be played with a particular kind of tool, that's not a, that's a pretty fragile game, right? And fourth edition was like that. I'm going to, you know, people are going to yell at me about fourth edition. I'm sorry. If you love fourth edition, go with the gods. But boy, one thing I'll tell you about fourth edition is definitely when we were getting deep into it, they had the character creator for fourth edition and boy, you needed that tool because trying to cross-reference four or five different fourth edition books to make sure that you had all of the right powers and the right tools with the right spec and all that stuff. It was a lot of books. And, and the, basically the character creator was the only way to have any I tried. I tried making paper characters in fourth edition for like Gen Con games and stuff like that. I couldn't do it. Like only if I said like, okay, I'm just only ever going to use the stuff that's in this book. But boy, it was hard, right? And you know, are we getting there now? A little bit, right? A little bit, a lot of books, you know? Oh, I forgot the Tasha's abilities, you know? A little bit. So that's tricky, right? It's tricky stuff. 
Anyway, that's something that we are going to continue to investigate. When I was running fourth edition, one thing that worked really well was limiting sources that I would say, okay, for this campaign, we're going to allow this book and this book. And what it meant was it kind of made the, instead of the players sort of just spreading across everything, it meant that they picked particular options that fit well with the kind of campaign we build. And I think that when we look at fifth edition now, it's been around like eight years, right? There's tons of material for it from not just from first party, but third parties as well. Being able to pick and mix and match from these different things to fit this theme to say like, we're running a Midgard game. We're going to be sitting in Zobek and you're going to have all of Tome of Heroes to be able to use. Well, they don't normally use anything from Tome of Heroes. So now they have this whole new set of material that they can, that they can use and try out weird races, weird, weird subclasses, subclasses that are built around stuff that's in Midgard. That's a really cool option. So I I think that I have certainly found, and I would certainly recommend when you're looking at a campaign, deciding which sources you're going to allow for that campaign to tailor the characters to the campaign and give the players a little nudge in the direction of trying something completely new. And that can include and should include bringing new stuff in, not just eliminating stuff that's there. So if you say like, yeah, we're not going to use Xanathar's guide this time. You say, we're not using Xanathar's, but we are using this new player option book from this other third-party publisher, right? You know, oh, okay. You know, the only real thing that's in the way is, is getting that material into D&D Beyond. In previous episodes, last two episodes, I've been talking about this idea of like what a near-perfect D&D game looks like. And I've talked about it on Twitter. I've talked, I've gotten comments on YouTube. Thank you all for the comments about what makes a, what makes a near-perfect game for you. I've thought about it a lot. I'm going to do an article about it. I'm going to do a video for it. One of the things that I thought about and looked at when I, I, when I looked at what people said, something that fascinated me and something that I really love about this hobby in general is none of them cost money. All of the things that kind of made a game a near-perfect game for people, when people talked about the things that they, that they really thought made a near-perfect game, all of them were free. They were all things that happened during the game. They were all interactions between the players. They were interactions that happened in the story. They were things that happened with the characters. Nobody said like, oh, I loved it because I had this really great visual display that you know cost $4,000, but was really fun. Or what I really loved is that every miniature was the exact right miniature or that the guy brought out the Tiamat miniature, right? And we, we played with the full miniature. That stuff adds to it, but nobody brought that up as a criteria for a near-perfect game right nobody brought up costly things nobody said my game was kind of terrible but then i bought these really really good dice and now my game is nearly perfect nobody said that and what's really interesting is is just the idea that the stuff and i've, I've often thought about this i've often thought about this when doing return and i've talked about it on the show and i've talked about it in general which is the best things that you can do to make your game better are free right and i think that's awesome i think that's awesome for our game right and and the idea that like where we spend our time preparing our game, the kind of, you know, I've been thinking about as part of this, like what's a near perfect game, this idea of like, what are the things that you can put in front of you to make when you're running the session to make it a near or to, to, to steer it towards being a near perfect game? How do you till the earth to grow a near perfect game, right? That's where your prep should go. And the things that you do to do that kind of prep are, are not, they don't cost anything right? It's not about buying a better battle map. It's not about buying a new set of accessories. It's not about buying uh, giant sets of miniatures. It's, you know, I mean, the, one of the lovely things about this game in general, the things I, I think about all the time. Yeah. So Sunjammer says, my game sucked until I built a million dollar set like Critical Role, right? I guess, I guess what? If you had that set, if they said, hey, you get to come over to the Critical Role set and run your game there and you ran a, bar- a bad game, the game would still be bad. Right. Like the fact that it's a beautiful table, it's really nice. And you'd be really impressed. It'd be really cool with the lanterns and the lighting and all that. And that stuff all adds to it. It's not that like throwing money in the right places for a game doesn't make the game better. But I think like how much better if you think about all of the factors that go into a game, all of the things that you can do, all the things that make a game better, how much better is it by pouring money into the game? And I, my, my belief, it's about 10% that, that you can, you can increase your game's overall joy by about 10%, maybe like 20%. If you're really building the game around the stuff that you've got, right. Then maybe you could jump up to like 20%. But most of all, like if you're just looking at a normal game, throwing money at is probably adding about 10% of value. But what's also neat about the game is that the cost to play the game is essentially zero. Like you can download the rules for free online. There's tons of material online to play play and run the game for free online. You don't have to buy anything. You go down to your local racetrack and you, you know, you steal a pencil 
right? Or the library, you go to the library and you go to where they have the card catalogs and the people that write in the card catalog system and you pull, you steal a couple pencils and abscond with them, right? And so you go find some pencils, you get some paper and, you know, but generally the material is basically free, right? To, to run a game. And sure, it goes up and there's certainly like an amount of money, like it's nice to have for everybody to have access to the books, right? And that's where you get into like $100, $200 range is really where the sweet spot is. And I bet you that I'm making a number up, right? I would bet that most people have spent around 200 bucks, right? On the amount of material that they need. And that's having like sets of books. That's having all three core books. Plus your players have books. Plus you've got sets of dice. Plus you have some tabletop accessories and stuff like that, right? Oh yeah. Info bro, who is apparently a librarian says you could just take pencils from the library. That's why we put them out there. You don't mind if people take the pencils and abscond with them to go play D&D. They should go play D&D the library. Go play D&D the library. I'm sure it's okay. Just, you know, don't keep it down. Don't shout every time somebody gets a critical hit. Yeah, Archive Delver says, I'm a librarian and I give you pencils to play D&D, right? So, good. Info Bro said, that's the best reason to be loud is critical hits. So, cool. I need to go to my library more often. We should all go to libraries. So, yeah, go go steal some pencils, right? Or, or ask. Ask your librarian if you can have a pencil to go play some D&D, right? Dice. You need a set of dice. So, it's like $6. But there's random rollers that you can get on a phone, assuming you have a phone. Most people have a phone, right? You're going to get some free random dice. So, playing D&D can essentially be zero, really close to zero, right? And it has no upper limit. And the example is, take a look at the amount of money that probably went into the studio for Critical Role. That's that's probably a million-dollar studio. It would not surprise me if that was a million-dollar studio. Think of all the equipment. Think of the bandwidth. Think of the physical construction. They had two different groups that came in there to construct that thing. There's a really cool video about what it took for them to build that studio. And it's probably a million-dollar studio, right? And then there's all the things in between. Joe Manganiello's you know, basement that he built out with all of stuff. Right? And, and that's, I don't know if it's a million dollars, but he's got a lot of, you know, it's probably hundreds of thousands of dollars right built into those things the, you know dnd and a castle dnd on cruise ships all these different places you can play right there's no upper limit to the amount of money you can spend on dnd either right there's you know which you don't think of as freedom right you don't look at that and go oh isn't that wonderful i could spend a hundred thousand dollars on my dnd game right like that's not and most people are like thank you so much right for spending a hundred thousand dollars but it's kind of nice knowing that there's like no limit on the kinds of things that we could expand our hobby into. Right. But the reality is, I think, right. My experience as one who has spent a significant amount of money on my D and D game, take it from me. The things that make your D and D game great don't cost any money at all. They're free. And I think that is the most powerful thought of this is that you want to make your game better, right? You want to really have your friends enjoy it more the things that you do to make your game more enjoyable are free. So what are some of those things? I'll, I'll throw a few out. There's more. I don't have, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but there's a few things that help out. Focus on the characters, right? Really look into the characters, build an adventure that supports the characters that shows off what they do both mechanically and brings them into the story. The more you kind of steer the game around the characters, the happier your player is going to be. And if you enjoy that, it's going to be really fun. We have a Patreon question about this today that, you know, it's really fun to, to focus on that, on the, on the characters. So focus on the characters. Revel in how things change during the game, right? Build situations that can go lots of different ways. Set up situations and let the characters navigate them and don't steer them down any one given path. Real basic D&D advice. Lots of people need it though, right? Free. Doesn't cost you anything at all right? Think about the in-world situation. Think about what's going on there. Think about how it operates. Think about what your villains are doing. Think about how the world moves and then operates and reacts to the things that the characters do, right? And that's free. You can just sit and think. You can sit in a park looking up at the sky. Sitting in a park is still free, I think. I'm pretty sure it's still free, right? Sit in a park, look up at the sky and think about your game. Free, right? Makes your game better. So there's so many different things that, that you can do, right? Think about the secrets and clues, right? Writing down 10 secrets and clues, 10 interesting things the characters might learn in your next game. You don't know where, right? Not sure where they're going to learn this stuff, but you know what they are. You have a list, free, right? So I just, I'm fascinated by that idea. I just love that idea. I love, I love the idea that the scope and range of our game is zero to, I don't know how much, lots, Probably not a million dollars. You know, you could definitely spend a million dollars. I could write you a list of a million dollars worth of stuff. Ten million, probably not. I don't. I don't know if anybody spent ten million dollars on their game. There's probably a couple of people that spent a million dollars on the game, right? 
that's fascinating. But then also equally fascinating is the idea that the things that really make our game greater free. And I, I love that. Let's go into our Patreon questions. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, I put up a post that asks for questions from patrons. They can ask anything about D&D, running D&D games, anything like that. And I answer all of the questions on Patreon. I go through every one of them. Every Friday morning, I spend my morning with a nice coffee, sitting and going through and, and talking to everybody in those. And it's a joy. Some of those questions that I think are really useful for everybody to hear, I will take and put into this show. Some of them I take and say, wow, I want to write a whole article or I want to do a video on these. And sometimes I do that. And you'll see those from time to time. So we're going to take a look at the questions from July. This, this was just posted last week, so these are brand new questions for July. If you are a patron of Sly Flourish, if you're not a patron and you want to join, you can join the Patreon and go do it. If you are a patron, you can go find that thread and you can add a question there. We ask for one question per person, though, because there's a lot of questions and there'd be too many if people can, kept, kept doing it. Laura says, there's a lot of advice out there about how to make sure players have fun. But I've noticed that the things that are fun for DMs are not discussed as often. Do you have any advice about how to make sure the DM has fun? What kinds of things are fun for you when you're DMing? This is a fantastic question. What is it that makes a DM fun? Last week, so last week there was a thread. I will post I will post a link to the thread in the notes below. And and there was a there was a whole thread about what parts of DMing gives you the greatest pleasure. And I found it to be a really interesting thread with lots of people talking about what they enjoyed in the game. And I was looking at this thread when I was talking about the topic of what makes a near perfect game because I think that there's a big overlap and the things that we think make a near perfect game and the things that we particularly love happening are pretty similar. So you can see a link to that in the notes in the notes below. When you look at that, a lot of it is the things that make the DM happy are the things that make the table happy, right? And I think that that kind of happens. Now, another part of this though is DMs like different things, like just like players like different things. There are some players who love to watch their characters do awesome stuff mechanically. There are some players who love to watch this, the de- get in this detail of their character. There's some players who love the story and navigating the story. You know, there's lots of different reasons why players like D&D and some overlaps. I like this and that and that, right? And the same way for DMs and it can change. I know what I have enjoyed as a DM has changed as I've played it. I would say that a DM has more control over the game bringing them joy than probably the players do. And the reason for that is like you get to decide how you're going to focus the game. You get to decide what you're going to focus on. In your prep, you get to decide what the game itself is going to focus on. Hopefully, you're keeping the considerations of your players in mind and knowing what kind of stuff they like. But And there certainly are DMs who run a particular kind of game because they know their players like them, even though they don't. That's something where you probably want to stop and ask yourself, like, you know, it's time to sit and, and re-baseline how we're playing the game that we're running. And that's probably the, the sticky bit. But I'd say in general, like you're going to steer the game. I changed, right? So an example of how I changed is I was a very tactical DM in the third edition and fourth edition days. I, I had gridded maps. I focused a lot on minis. I built encounters that were designed to be combat tests. You know, I did a lot of that sort of stuff, particularly in fourth edition, spent a lot of time in fourth edition doing that. I did have stories. I did have like major changes in stories and interesting things that happened and things that would shift and change. But I really was, you know, tactical focus gridded gridded maps i was fully behind fourth edition style and then after fourth edition i I started playing games like 13th age i started playing games like dungeon world i started playing other other games that had more of a story focused approach where combat was abstract fate i played a lot of fate and i loved that the story there was still combat there was still action there were still things happening but the resolution wasn't as minute. You didn't have to worry about five foot squares. You didn't have to worry about specific, specific positioning. You didn't have your wire template that you put over the minis to see if that fireball hit them. You just described things that happened. And I sort of changed in what I enjoyed. And now I enjoy high action, high pace, high fun, unexpected events. Like that, that's what I love in my game. Like when I'm talking about my Numenera game, I love when I don't know where things are going to go. I love watching the game then the story get richer at the table instead of me bringing it there. Like imagine you wrote a story and you loved it and you brought it to the table and then you just put it out there. Well, that's not going to be as exciting to you because you just told the same story you already just wrote. But when you see it turn into something new because of what the characters bring in, that for me is great fun. And that wasn't the way I used to play before. Not even like just years before, right? Like it's not like it was 20 years ago. It was only like 10 years ago. I was playing fourth edition that way. So your drive can change. And that meant that the kind of players that I run my games for changed. I've, I've had people 
that you know my my the people that have been playing in and out of my game have rotated. Some have stayed the whole time. I have I have a couple of friends who have played through third, fourth, and fifth with me. Right, we played for more than a decade, and they've seen the change, and they're they're happy both ways. They're happy that it was you know they liked the tactical stuff back then. They like the more story focused stuff now. They they're they're flexible and how they like it, which is great. But a lot of times when I'm telling people, and this is one of your tips about how do you, you know DM has fun. I try hard to make it clear to new players that are going to join the campaign for a while the kind of game I'm going to run. And there's a few little tricky things that I put in there to try to ensure that there are people who focus a certain way. They'll recognize that they're probably not going to have that much fun in my game. And one of them is I don't run a tactical combat focused game. I run a story driven narrative game where we focus on the story that's going on in the game session more than we focus on the mechanics of the game. And I also make it clear. I run a lot of combat in theater of the mind. Right. And that that little litmus test right there, a lot of people say, oh, I hate theater of the mind. And you're like, thank you and good day. Right. Which is cool. You know, not not everybody should say, uh, oh, you know, they're not wrong for not wanting theater of the mind, just like I'm not wrong for wanting it. Right. And that's fine. And I think it's good to have sort of a differentiator that I can say very clearly that makes them realize, ah, that's probably not my kind of game, because that also says what other kinds of players are like that. And I know that like th- definitely there are people who love gridded combat and, 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 you know, th- but they want to focus on gridded combat for a lot of reasons. But if I tell them gridded combat, if I say I'm going to run some battles in theater of the mind, sometimes people don't care. They're like, that's fine. Right. And, 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 you know, it's it, either or, but sometimes they, you know, people who are theory crafting, like one thing I don't want at my table really. And again, it's not wrong. People can do whatever they want to do, but I know what kind of game I enjoy running. And I don't want to run a game for people who their primary goal is testing characters out. I've built interesting mechanical combinations and I just want to see it work. I don't really care about their backstory. I don't have a reason why they pick this stuff. I just want to test the character out and see it work. And that's not the kind of game I want to run. I want to run a game where you actually care about your character, where the character has some kind of story, where the reasons why the character selected the options they selected matters in the story, right? doesn't mean you're not going to have fun with mechanics. You're still going to have fun. But testing, it shouldn't be, for me, in my game, the, the number one thing. So I think it's important to know what you like as a DM. I think it's important to define what you like for your players. And especially for new players, because it's your opportunity to say, do you want, you know, is this the right player for the right table or not? Right. Are they going to have fun at my game? And am I going to enjoy running it for them? You can figure that out. So, yeah. So advice on how to make sure you you are kind of in control of the fun that you can have. And you it's OK to say this is the kind of game I want to run. So that's a long discussion. Laura, I don't know if I nailed the answer or not. That's actually a really good thing that probably warrants a deeper, a deeper analysis. So I'm going to keep I'm going to keep that one unchecked because I want to. Spend more time with it. Bantha says, how do you handle in-game shopping trips as quickly as possible? It, it depends. This is this is a kind of a funny topic because there's definitely like, you know, I think Critical Role has had sessions where they had spent like three hours on a shopping episode in a town and they meet a beloved NPC and that NPC becomes, you know, there's a million pieces of new fan art about that, that, about that particular NPC. And maybe in your game, your players love shopping episodes. Tricky is when you have players where some of them like shopping episodes and some do not. So my, my general thought, generally speaking, I don't, I don't find them as a DM particularly interesting. I don't mind having sections of the game that are a little bit looser and a little bit more open and players can do different things. So, you know, a shopping trip could be part of a larger downtime session. But one of the tricks of running downtime is that one of the tricks with running downtime is making sure that the pacing is right for the players, right? We had a question last week where somebody said, hey, I ran an episode and we were trying to figure out what was going on in the next one. And I was engaging with one of the players, but two others had checked out completely. And if you run shopping trips, you're going to have people that are checked out completely. You're going to have some players that really like them, maybe. And you're going to have other players who just, man, I want to get on with the story. So, you know, and that might be okay. It might be, if two of your players are like, that, eh, that's cool. Like I just, I don't need to be 100% engaged 100% of the time. And I'm going to check my phone and read Twitter. Right. And like, okay, like we're adults, we can do what we want. Right. But I think a trick with shopping trips, which is a trick with downtime sessions in general, is pacing. Like, how do you make sure that the pacing is there enough to keep people generally engaged with what's going on? Pacing doesn't mean high pace all the time, just like beats, right? Just like saying having a beat is always upward beats or always downward beats. No, beats oscillate, right? Good good things happen, bad things happen, good things happen, bad things happen. In the same way with pacing, you want slow pace, fast pace, slow pace, fast pace. You want times where tension is really high, combat, right? You know, combat's a big one where everything, you know, six seconds increments, right? We're, we're, we're spending a lot of time worried about six seconds. 
And then travel is not quite as much. Dungeon delving a little bit tighter, right? But, you know, and then they might have downtime sessions where they could go on for weeks, right? And trying to make sure that you're understanding that that pacing can work. But now there's other things you can do with a shopping trip. One is I do retroactive shopping trips. I say, like, you have been to a town. You have had the option to buy stuff. We're not going to worry about buying individual things right now assuming you have the cash to buy something, then later when you're in a situation, you say, oh, I sure wish I'd bought an Explorer's kit. You could have bought one, right? We will assume that your character had bought one. Now, you can't do it if it was like that one thing you really wish you had that was a little weird and archaic. You can't go buy that. But if it's like, oh yeah, we should have bought torches. I'm not gonna hose you for not remembering to buy torches. Some DMs will. Some DMs like, you didn't buy torches, right? I'm like, look, the adventurers are smart. They would have bought torches, right? And I don't wanna spend a lot of time for the players to have to sit and think about all the different things that they might want. Sometimes that might be fun and that's cool. And then you, you do it that way. Other times though, you want to roll on with the story. Time is tight. We want to get in the adventure. Just say, hey, you can have bought your stuff in the past. There are games, I think Blades in the Dark has this, where you sort of like make a resource roll and the resource roll determines whether or not you had picked up the thing you want. I think that's a good way to go. You can you could do something like that. You could have somebody roll like an intelligence check and if they make the check, that's something they would have picked up. If they don't, then they don't. You could do something like that. Or you could just say, hey, they, they, they just buy it. They, you just have it, right? So I, I generally, like you would expect if they're in a reasonably sized town, they could buy any of the regular adventuring equipment that's in the player's handbook. Anything non-magical. You might put a limit on spell spell components right you can't buy a thousand gold piece bowl in every town right that's how i that's why i limit heroes feast is a thousand gold piece bowls are really rare you also probably can't buy unlimited healing potions i usually say like there's four healing potions available in this town right like those because they're like a magic item i tend to say like those are those are not always openly available that way you don't have like i buy a thousand healing potions right like, yeah it helps because they're only 50 gold pieces each and i got fifty thousand gold so, uh, Shantha, I hope that helps answer your question. Bram B says, how do I make sure my players like the patron I have set up for them? I will start my, I'm starting my Theros campaign on the 13th of July and have a Sphinx patron planned. The patron has lost their memories of their lair and will task the party with collecting lore and conquering her lair. How do I keep this figure interesting and fun for the players to return to? You can't. Hopefully your players will engage with the, the character and they will like your patron. You can't make them like your patron. And there's a, a few, there are some tricks. There's some tricks to make it more likely they'll like your patron. But it's always, you're, you know, it's, it's moving down a dangerous path if you make an assumption that the players are going to love one of your NPCs. Because a lot of times they might just kick the NPC off a cliff. Perkins talked about this. Perkins talked about how he had this really important NPC with this really important lore and they met the NPC and somebody booted the NPC and thought it was a villain and kicked him off a cliff. And he's like, oh man, there goes all my lore, right? But the reality is you can't make your players love an NPC. There's some things you can do to help pave the path though. A big one is tying the character's backgrounds to the patron what what connects the pa the the characters to the patron is this somebody they have served before in a theros game it could be it could be an oracle that they have gone to since they were a child right work with the players especially in your session zeros to connect the characters to the patrons you want to be important right and if they tie to them, like, for example, Zabilna in Wild Beyond the Witchlight is an important NPC in Wild Beyond the Witchlight. My wife's character, Bella, is a cleric who worships Zabilna as though she is a god and gets her spells from it and stuff like that. Hard to beat that as a good connection between an, a character and an NPC. That NPC is going to be important to that character pretty much forever, right? Really, really good, solid way. So I, in my Eberron game, the main NPC was a, a House Kenneth a, a noble that was the uncle of one of the characters, right? And we called him, I forget what his name was, like Uncle Ben, right? And he was like, hey, Uncle Ben, right? And they, they go back and talk to Uncle Ben. Now, something else is sometimes the characters outgrow their patrons right that they get to a point in the adventure where they don't need to go back to the patron anymore especially if the patron is stationary and the characters are moving around and that's okay too right like the player's like hey, you know we used to have a patron we cared a lot about we haven't met her that's all right like you're you've you're you know you're motivated a lot of times the purpose of a patron is to bring the characters together and send them off in a quest once the characters are together and once they have the request they don't really need the patron anymore that depends right and you might bring them in and out but the reality is you're not going to, you can't make them love that patron. And you know, one other trick is the, the, which pajamas do you want to wear before bed, right? That instead of offering one patron, you offer three and you say, which one of these patrons in session zero as players, which one of these three kind of are the most interesting patron for you? And it gives them a choice. And now they've selected the patron. Now they're more likely to like that patron because they selected it, right? 
So you can you can do that too. Have multiple NPCs, see which ones gravitate, and then and then follow that one. Is better than making like making them love a patron, particularly like if you role play them and they come across as snotty and the players just don't resonate. You're just not going to get them to love you know, to, to love that, to love that patron anymore. Matt B says, I am running a game for my son and a friend, both 14 years old. They both take the game reasonably seriously, but have sort of silly larcenous characters, Glimbo and Glombo, excellent, who aren't cut out for the usual save the in town kingdom world type plots. I've been trying to run heist treasure hunt adventures, but providing a tantalizing hook for them is getting tough. They're both willing to go along to get along, but I'd like them to feel driven or excited about the adventures. Any idea how to draw them in? Yeah, so you're on the right track. I think the idea of running the kinds of adventures they want to play, the treasure, you know, heists and treasure hunts can really work. You can sort of tie heists and treasure hunts to a larger plot that they need to go steal stuff in order for a larger plot to take place, right? In order to get it out of the hands of evildoers who are also trying to steal the things. I, I, I you know, it's, it's, I mean, one big one is to have a conversation with them and ask them what kind of adventures do they enjoy? What are the stories that they like? You know, to ask them more about their characters and their motivations. What are, the, what are your characters like? What do they want to do? Draw it out from them. And you can have, one thing is like, you can have a session zero anytime. You don't have to have a session zero in the beginning of a campaign. You can have it right in the middle and say, now that we played for a while, what are the kinds of adventures you enjoy? Also, they're 14, right? And 14 year olds are, you know, I'm not an expert. I don't have any kids, right? And 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 I don't know any 14-year-olds personally. So, but I remember being 14 and and you know, 14-year-olds are going to do what 14-year-olds do, right? And and so it it it's you're not going to bring them into your again, sort of critical role staff levels of attention when they're focused on or the critical role cast, right? When they're focused on the game and they're all real excited about what's going on. You're not going to reach that level with 14-year-olds, I don't think. But I think that like having a conversation with about the kind of adventures they have. And you can still have sort of heroic almost by circumstance. If you think about the plot line of the original Conan the Barbarian movie, right? They're thieves, right? It's three thieves break into a tower. They steal the eye of the serpent, right? And their, their goal was not to, you know, take down Thulsa Doom's army. Their goal, and maybe Conan's was, but their goal was to go steal a jewel, right? And they went and they stole a jewel and they got all this money for it, right? And they, they stole all this great stuff and they're rich. And then the king kidnaps them and says, you, a bunch of thieves broke into this place that no one was willing to go into. You're, I want to hire you to go save my daughter and I will pay you more money. You will all be kings yourself if you go save my daughter. And they're greedy. They're like, yeah, we'll take the money to go save your daughter, right? They're like, they don't care about the king. They don't care about the politics. They don't care about Thulsa Doom stuff. Conan does, but the, you know, the rest of them don't. And even that our argument are like, why are we going after Thulsa Doom, right? We can go wherever we want. Like we could go be anything. We could go retire. Why are we going to this nest of serpents, right? So you, there are ways to make a plot line that still drives towards good goals, but based on the motivation of greed and, and, and you know, greed and, and theft, right? So... I think he can get there, you know, Fafford and the Grey Mauser, right? It's a Grey Mouse, right? Does that have that right? Yeah. You know, there are lots of different approaches that you could take where you have sort of larcenous characters that are still doing good, but almost by circumstance. But yeah, I have a I would say have a conversation with them and also they're 14, right? So maybe one shots, maybe run like a more episodic one shots instead of trying to do a big campaign. Friends, I want to thank you all for hanging out with me today. I hope you enjoyed the Lazy D&D Talk Show. If you enjoyed this show, there are four things you can do to help me out. One, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. The link is in the show notes below. People who subscribe to the newsletter get weekly Sly Flourish articles right to your inbox. You also get access to the Sly Flourish Adventure Generator PDF for free. You can support me directly on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material. They get to, to bring up questions on the, on the monthly Q&A. They get access to a dedicated Discord channel. All kinds of stuff that our that patrons get access to. Most of all, they help support me directly. You can go to the Sly Flourish store and buy any of my books, including the Any Nominated Lazy DMs Companion is available there in PDF and will soon be available in print. And you can subscribe to my channel right here on YouTube and like the video as well, which helps other people find the video as well. Thank you all very much. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.